Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and or completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, and cry along with us, whether you're in your car, in the kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone that you love, getting a mani-pedi, maybe while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, on the dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. Joining me today is the lovely China Shell, a lovely friend of mine for life, a mom of two, a soon-to-be wife, and the owner of the HDA Halliburton Dance Academy. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea. So China is going to be sharing with us today um, something that I've been super excited to have as a topic of conversation on the podcast, postpartum depression, postpartum awareness, and postpartum anxiety. So China, thank you so much for sharing your your knowledge, your stories, your own darks and... uh, stories with us. It's a big deal. So I'm really excited to share this. It's always been a huge passion of mine to get the word out about these topics. So Mm -hmm. it means a lot. Well, you were saying when you got here that you actually had to watch a Facebook video, a Facebook live that you had done. So can you tell us about how that kind of helped jog your memory? Yes. So it's been about just coming up to a year since I made that video on Facebook and it was a video that I made in July, 2018. So almost a year ago, after I had just weaned off my medication and I, I having it, having been almost a year since I made that video, I did, I I kind of had to jog my memory. Like, what was it like in the depths of this, in the depths of postpartum depression, anxiety, and OCD? And what were the details to our story and our journey? And, um, we were talking earlier about how our, our brains are wired to kind of block out Mm -hmm. the trauma and block out the bad and only remember the good. And, and so on my way here, I did, I had, to, I had to listen to that video in the background and it, it was hard to listen to. Surprisingly, I thought that like, oh, it's just going to bring me back to it. And I'll just remind myself of some situations that I can make sure that I'm, I'm talking from an authentic place. And, and it made me tear up pretty, pretty hardcore. Cause I, you forget, you forget how hard it was. Mm-hmm. What was your, what was your biggest kind of, oh my gosh, moment from listening to it this morning? Oh, I think just, just that dark feeling of helplessness. And then one of the stories in the, in the video about the support that I had and Mm -hmm. how strong Sam, my fiance was during it all and how he kept it all together, not only personally, but for our household. And, and that, that hit me pretty hard because that's one of those things especially that you don't realize while you're going through it is how strong everyone around you is being because you are fighting so hard to be strong yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I think that even having been lis- able to listen to it this morning and kind of put yourself back in that place, you probably do feel so far removed from it now. Very far. Yeah. yeah it's um, especially in the past few months, I've felt more back to myself than I have in seven years. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, it's, it's really surprising when you start rekindling relationships with, with friends that 
you lost touch with while you were in that dark place um, or just feeling like yourself in general and remembering the things that you like or especially having time for yourself. Like I had time to shower every day this week. That's a big thing. Yeah. Like, um, in the mornings now, while the boys are eating breakfast, I actually brush my teeth and wash my face every morning. And that is a big deal. I've even run the straightener over my hair a few mornings <laughs> this week. And, and so having that time in the morning to get yourself ready without having to juggle spoon feeding a baby or nursing a baby or changing diapers or mm -hmm. I'm still packing lunches and I'm still doing other mom tasks, but they're so much more self-sufficient. I can literally just say, go get dressed. I don't have to get their clothes anymore. It doesn't always mean they go to school dressed to the nines, <laughs> yeah. but uh, today I'm pretty sure Ollie is wearing two mismatched socks at different heights on his legs with shorts, but that actually, I think he put the pants on over top of a pair of jean shorts. <laughs> <laughs> we got to school and he said, mommy, look, you didn't even notice I put these pants on. And I said, are you wearing shorts underneath those? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but it means everybody's happy mm -hmm. and it means I'm taking five, 10 minutes for myself in the morning. And for a long so time, I didn't important. have that. Mm -hmm. Advocacy for postpartum depression, awareness, anxiety. This has become a big thing for you. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? It has become a really big deal for me and I'm I'm really passionate about it because I feel like there isn't enough comfort out there for people possibly going through it or people having gone through it and that's okay. Of course, not everyone is expected to stream it from the rooftops that this is what you've gone through and maybe it's a lot more personal for you. But considering the fact that I am comfortable talking about it, I'm very comfortable answering questions. I'm very comfortable talking to strangers about it. The number of people that have messaged me, especially after making that video, or even just seeing a few smaller posts on my social media, it it gives people this comfort zone of opening up. And I'm so happy to be someone that is comfortable mm -hmm. streaming it from the rooftops for the right reasons, because I want people to not feel like they're alone well, that relatability, that comfort level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really important. And it's not enough light is shed on it. And that was a huge thing going into motherhood for me is that I did not understand postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. I had heard the term and I had heard baby blues and I had been asked at postnatal appointments, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. um, I had never understood, though, that it wasn't caused by situation and circumstance. Right. And I think that that's a huge misconception. Major. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of guilt tied into that as well. So mm -hmm. then when you start feeling iffy or feeling like, oh, maybe I am falling into the category of postpartum um, circumstances or postpartum depression and, and issues, then you start to feel like, oh, but I'm not in the right circumstance for that. I don't I don't deserve to, to have that label on me or I don't deserve to feel that way or... I'm being selfish because we kind of are made to understand or made to think that postpartum depression is caused by circumstance and people in certain situations and certain dark chapters of their life might go through something like that. But in my situation with a healthy baby and a happy family and a roof over my head and food on my plate and clothes on my back and, uh, a healthy life, a happy life, I don't deserve to feel that way. Mm -hmm. I don't deserve to go to the doctor and say, I think there's something wrong. I'm sad. Mm -hmm. and, and it would be blocked out. Exactly. It's or ignored completely. Yeah, suppressed is a great word for it. Yeah. Very suppressed. And the longer it's suppressed, the worse it gets, of course. How did you... 
how'd you, how did you know? How did you, um, you know, find out or come to this realization that, oh my gosh, I have postpartum depression. I, I remember sitting on the couch one day and just palms up and just looked at my mom. I think she came over on her lunch hour as she did lots during that time when Ollie was first born and just said, I am not healthy stressed right now. I, I was legitimately stressed. I had just taken over a business. I was running a dance studio for the first time. Uh, my partner is from the UK and we hadn't completed the process of sponsorship. So we weren't sure if he would be allowed to stay in the country. I had just had a baby. He was colic. I had an emergency C-section. There was a lot of components to our life that were causing significant stress. Mm -hmm. And during this moment, I just palms up. I'm not healthy stressed. This is not okay. And it was still that, again, I just thought like this was an extra hard day mm -hmm. <laughs> in the life of us. And then it was still months later that, again, I remember sitting between my sister and my mom on the couch in my house coat and said, I don't want to get out of my robe every day. Something's got to be wrong. This is too hard. And it was, again, a few months later that my mom actually called me down to the house. So... There had been signs and there had been moments of like, oh my God, okay, this, that's enough. Like I've got my hands up in the air. I'm white flags all over the place and surrendering. But then we would just plug away, go move forward, get through that day. Maybe it was that, it was an extra hard day. Mm -hmm. We were going through a lot. And then a few months later, uh, my mom called me down to the house and I was standing in the entranceway and she said to me, I sincerely don't think your hormone levels went back to normal after you had Ollie and that's okay. We can get you help. We need to get you help because when the phone rings, I'm worried you've heard Oliver and that needed to be said. Mm -hmm. And she said it out of the best place in her heart. She wanted us to be safe and she loved us. And I, th I'm so grateful that she did say it because I wouldn't have gotten help. Mm -hmm. So when she, when she had said that to you, um, and I, I guess you would have gone right to the hospital after that. Yeah. So, so there then, was a sense of, I guess, you know, gratitude, I guess it would have been quite, quite confronting, but mm -hmm. almost kind of that surrender as well. Just thinking, you know, there is more to this. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't even imagine how hard it must've been for her to get those words out. Mm-hmm. To admit to me that That's she's right. worried I've hurt my son. And to flip that even for, for you know, for your perspective now mm -hmm. is like, would round that completely Yeah. to see, and, and now as a mom as well, you know, to think I have something that is so difficult to say, but is so necessary and this could be damaging, but in the end it's from a place of love. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such strong love. Like as a mom, and I've learned a lot about how to react and how to, how strong you can be as a mom and mm -hmm when something needs to happen, you'll make it happen. Yeah. And she made it happen. Yeah. She's an incredible woman. <laughs> the, you went to the hospital and what kinds of tests did they do? Or, you know, how did, how did this diagnosis come about? It was mostly just vocal. They never did, um, they never did blood work. They never did hormonal tests to, to test my balances. Um, I don't remember any of that ever happening. I just remember it being very vocal and mm -hmm. I was referred to a counselor first. They just thought like, oh, this is something that maybe meditation or, and I do not put that process down at all. I think that mm -hmm. that's very 
important to go through the stages to make sure that, Mm -hmm. okay, your only option at this point is medication or your only option at this point is X, Y, or Z. Um, and to, to rule out the other options first. Mm -hmm. And so I did go to counseling and it was, I'm very grateful for it as well. And, and the woman that I spoke with was amazing. She's so kind and, um, amazing at what she does. I don't think it was what I needed though. I think I was in too deep and I needed something more. And so, and they recognized that it was good. However, at my postnatal appointments originally, I wish that more had been done Mm -hmm. in the initial weeks or months postpartum. Um, They just just ask you the basics at postnatal, don't they? You know, how are you feeling? Do they, they don't really go into more detail than that? They really don't. It's just, how are you feeling? We just want to make sure that you're not experiencing any, any baby blues. And I don't know if it's coming from a strategic place of making sure that they keep it a light, a light kind of airy conversation, but I think they need to dive deeper. I think they need to, it's something that needs to be a little taken a little bit more seriously mm-hmm. in those postnatal appointments. The attention is rightfully on the baby and as it should be, but the mom needs, I think that there's even a friend of mine was telling me that she did some studies into, um, other cultures and the mom actually is surrounded by a circle of women, sisters, aunts, mothers, grandmothers, and isn't left alone for, I think it's up to six months. I don't remember which culture it is. This was a long time ago. We were chatting about this, but it's actually taken so seriously that the care for the mother is as great as the care for the baby. Mm-hmm. And I think in Western civilization, there's so much pressure for women to be these independent, like we're going through such an amazing time in feminism as well where women are so empowered and, and it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. I am like, I'm pretty sure that 80% of my t-shirts say something about like, (laughs) go girl. And so it's great. Um, but I think that it also makes us feel very like, no, I've got to handle this. Yeah. I've got this. I don't need your help. Yeah. Yeah. We're not vulnerable anymore. Mm -hmm. How did the diagnosis make you feel? That first visit to the doctor after my mom um, confronted me and wanted to wanted to bring me and get me help would have been when they fu- when I finally actually said I'm pretty sure that you do have a chemical imbalance that is causing postpartum depression you are ill it was relieving mm-hmm. I did feel I think everyone's reaction is different and I think that sadness would definitely come along with it I think that feeling this sense of of like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I need to succumb to, I've just been taken over and I don't know who I am anymore, but there was also this sense of serious relief. Like, okay, there is something wrong. This isn't going to be my reality for the rest of my life. I don't need to get to know this new person that I am so greatly because I'm going to live with her for the rest of my life or live as her for the rest of my life. This is treatable. I can get help. And my family will get me back. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a relief. What were some of the telltale signs that, you know, even even for new moms? So um, actually, you could elaborate maybe a little bit on the fact that you had a C-section, that you're, even that your C-section with Ollie was a bit traumatic mm-hmm. as well. So maybe, maybe kind of we'll dial it back and just head back to that for a second. Because, um, you know, even four weeks after your C-section, you know, coming off of meds and then having a cranky baby for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, um, yeah, the cranky baby thing is so 
to paint a picture my mother-in-law is, is so funny she always talks about this one moment she was visiting us four weeks after Ollie was born and she finally she was in the spare room in the basement and she finally in the middle of the night just thought oh my gosh I can't sit here anymore I need to go and help them and she walked into our room and I had my feet wedged between the rails of Ollie's crib which was bungeed to our bed frame and I was pushing on it to keep myself moving and bouncing on our, our mattress because I couldn't stand anymore. My legs were going to give out. I was so tired trying to bounce Ollie to sleep. She says that she looked up, there was a light show going on on the ceiling from the projector and there was rock music blaring at like full volume. I'm pretty sure our neighbors thought like, I'm, I thought those people just had a baby and now they're partying. What's going on? The planet rock blasting because Ollie just loved rock music and loud music, which wasn't shocking considering I taught dance until four days after I was due. Um, and she just walked in and was like, Oh my God. (laughs) So that, that paints a picture and puts things into perspective for just how cranky Ollie was. Um, but prior to those four weeks, his birth story is, is something else. I, I had an emergency C-section. I wish that I had educated myself on birthing a little bit more. I remember my midwife sitting me down and being like, so do you have a birth plan? And I looked at her and thought, isn't it just to get it out? What are you talking about? What's a birth plan? I didn't know what a birth plan was. Mm-hmm. I thought the plan was to get the baby out. Yeah. I didn't know you had options. So I just looked at her and was like, oh, like, <laughs> doesn't my water break like it does in the, in the movies? And then I, I go to the hospital and have then, a baby. and then I have those contraction things mm-hmm. and my body dilates and then the baby comes out, fingers crossed head first, and then born. no no that's not how it goes (laughs) uh no so basically I woke up at seven in the morning I had was supposed to teach a full night of dance the night before which is so funny because the kids that I was supposed to teach are now my seniors and they laugh all the time about how thank god you called Shay to teach us that night because your water would have broken on the on the studio floor and we'd spent months joking about how they were all gonna have to birth my baby at the studio and it probably would have happened so I took the night off the night before Shay taught for me and at seven in the morning, I woke up and I thought, I am pretty sure I'm in labor. Like something's going on. I don't feel right. And I called my midwife and she said, yeah, like that does sound like early signs. Like just keep an eye on it. And I thought I was 23. I was young. And I thought like, why aren't you freaking out? Like, <laughs> I just told you I think I'm in labor, but she's, she's a midwife and she's done this a few times before. So it wasn't that exciting. And then I called my mom and I said, like, I just feel like my back aches. Like I have kind of like period cramps. I also feel like I maybe have like diarrhea cramps. Like, is this labor? And she said, yeah, it sounds kind of like labor. Like, and then I actually called Terry, um, a really good friend of mine and a second mom. And she said, like, just run a bath and get in the bath and it'll, it'll help subside the pain and, and play it by ear. See how you're feeling. And so then in a nutshell, we kind of like around 11 a.m. We thought like, yeah, yeah, we're definitely I'm in labor. Like, let's let's get ourselves to Lindsay. My cousin lives next door to the hospital. We'll be closer by, and then we won't have an hour and a half drive in full blown contractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, about halfway to Lindsay, I screamed at Sam to pass the 18 wheeler in a construction zone because I was in so much pain, and he'll understand. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> that was irrational. Remember earlier I said yeah. I can be irrational. <laughs> that was a, that was a moment. <clears throat> um. So then we made it to Lizzie. I had a, a long bath. Quinn painted my toenails. I watched Harry Potter. I was in a lot of pain, though. Contractions are the real deal. That's mm. That hurts. And then the midwife came. And um, unfortunately, it was one of... 
the midwives that I didn't click as much with. Mm-hmm. Um, I clicked with the other two, but the, this one had just come on board as a temporary midwife. And so I hadn't gotten to know her as well. And she was a little bit more hardcore. I think that if she had it her way, I would have stayed at my cousin's house quite a bit longer. But I just kind of, in my comfort zone, wanted to get to the hospital, which my other midwives understood. And we were all on the same page, but this one kind of wanted me to stick around the house a little bit longer. And I was in a lot of pain. And now I understand what those those railings on the side of the, the walls oh, are in yes. the hospitals. Yeah, that's that's those are holy shit rails. <laughs> so <laughs> I would buckle down. It, the corridor from the front doors of the hospital to the, the maternity ward is maybe 50. It's not far. It took me a long time <laughs> to get down that hallway. I spent 18 hours or so in labor. They broke my water um, in the hospital. That's painful. They gave me an epidural, which Sam almost fainted during. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, the nurse actually came over. I remember him gripping me and being like, I think I'm just going to go get your mom. And I'm, I'm cat curled over going through a contraction with a, an epidural going into my spine and said, you're not going anywhere. And he said, no, no, no. And the nurse came over and said, here's your mom. I'm just going to take him outside for a breath of fresh air because he was going down. So that was all fine. That worked out. And then at about midnight, they said, you're not dilating. You've been, you're having really strong contractions, but your body's not dilating and you're, it's, it's spiking the baby's heart rate. It's stressing the baby out. So we're going to do an emergency C-section and that emergency C-section means quick. Like we're doing this right now. I think I had time to call my parents at my cousin's house. They had gone back and they were going to catch a couple hours of sleep and come back in the morning. Mm-hmm. And they made it there just in time and they suited Sam up and they wheeled me into the OR and my body went into delivery shock mode, which I also didn't know happened. So I start shaking uncontrollably on the delivery table. Um, Ollie is now stuck in my birth canal trying to birth. So they, they make the incision. Um, Sam's holding my shoulders down. I'm being thrashed around like I'm being held by a shark. I'm shaking in delivery mode. They're trying to yank Ollie out of my birth, out of my birth canal. It wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant. They then whisked Ollie off to make sure that he was healthy. They whisked me off to recovery. I remember looking at them and being like, no, no, no. Like, I want to be with my family. I want to be with the baby. I want to see their reaction. I didn't get to see them see him for the first time. Um, they always they always reassure me, like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, we didn't get to hold him or anything. And I always say, like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, you got to see him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember saying to the nurses and the doctors, I, I don't want to rest. I don't want to rest. I want to go and be with them. I'll rest there. It'll be fine. And, and I just remember them watching. I just remember watching them put something into my IV and saying, no, your body just went through 18 hours of extreme labor and you just had an emergency C-section. Physically, you need to rest right now. And they knocked me out. Mm. And I woke up a few hours later. And that's when I finally got to go in, nurse Ollie for the first time, see my family, be with them. But looking back, it's not easy. That mm-hmm. wasn't the that no. wasn't the birth plan I pictured. No, absolutely not. So mm-hmm. I think there definitely can be um, some pretty strong connections between your postpartum experience and your birth experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely a connection there. So if, um, after, after that, so you were on some pretty heavy meds after that. I was. So since it was an emergency C-section, I had to stay on Percocet and Tremadol. So I would take a Percocet every two hours and, um, and then a, or sorry, a Tremadol and then a Percocet every 
two hours and then mm-hmm. two hours later, Tramadol, two hours later, Percocet. So I was taking strong painkillers and the doctors always reassure you that it's not getting, it's not damaging your baby. Your baby's still fine, but it was definitely keeping him pretty chill. I think. And when I came off of that medication after three to four weeks, because after four weeks I was still drooling toothpaste out. I couldn't spit toothpaste out. Like imagine, imagine not having your core muscles Mm -hmm. at all. Um, I had a, a very large incision that partially got infected and was stapled, not stitched. One of the staples wasn't even on the incision. It wasn't very clean either. It was not a clean incision. If you look at my scar now, one side is very drooped down. I think I think they were in a in a pretty big hurry to get that done. So it wasn't done very clean, and I paid for it in my recovery. Mm-hmm. So at one point, I remember Ollie had fallen asleep on the couch with Ju- or with Sam because we were exhausted, and I couldn't get out of bed. And this was a long time after. It was enough time after that I I should have been able to get it myself out of bed. And I took a water bottle off the nightstand and it was a can, like a canteen, like it was a Mm -hmm. steel water bottle. And I chucked it because I couldn't even yell. I couldn't yell. It takes core muscles to yell. And I chucked it at the doorframe to wake wake Sam up and it it wouldn't wake him up. He couldn't wake up. He didn't hear me. And I was, I felt really trapped in bed. And then of course he felt horrible that he didn't hear me shouting for him because I couldn't yell and loud enough. And so... That was the kind of stuff that we were going through. And then at four weeks, I came off of that medication and Ollie started to scream. And he screamed for a long time. He was in pain. Colicky baby. (laughs) Yeah, it was sad. And then when you have a colic baby, I always tell moms, like, don't... When you're in this state of very, very stressful aggressive anger Mm -hmm. towards your baby Mm -hmm. remind yourself that it's a cycle because you're going to come back around to feeling very guilty about that feeling but then you're going to come back around to feeling very sympathetic for your baby so you're living in this cycle of sympathy anger guilt so you're sympathetic because you know that they're in pain and you're sympathetic because they can't tell you what's wrong and because they are crying for a reason they're not just trying to get attention, they're babies. Mm -hmm. But then it pushes you and it pushes you far and you want to fix it so bad Mm -hmm. and you can't. And then you get mad and you're not mad necessarily directly at the baby. And you're not necessarily even mad directly at yourself. You're just mad. You just, this instinct takes over your body and you can't fix it. And you want to so badly and you just get angry and I would get aggressive and it wasn't nice I um I once shoved Oliver's soother into his mouth at about two months old and screamed at him to take his fucking soother and then I surrounded him with pillows to keep him safe he wasn't even rolling at this point but I just put a couple of pillows on either side of him and I called my mom at work and she came right away and she took Ollie for a walk and in hindsight, that was probably one of my first anxiety attacks, and I just didn't recognize it. And Ollie fell asleep in her arms 50 feet down the road because he wouldn't fall asleep for me because I was stressed and he was picking sensing up on that, me. Sensing that frustration and anger. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They, yeah, they feel that energy big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you go through something like that in that circumstance where that happens, and then you feel so guilty. Mm. 
you're overwhelmed with guilt. So as long as you remember that it's a cycle, you'll get through it. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. That's really great advice. You mentioned earlier when we chatted about holding high standards for yourself and being a little bit type A as a new parent, as a new mom. And what was that like, trying to trying to maintain that or just, you know, like, I've got this, I've got this, I can do this, and holding those high standards for yourself? Yes, yeah, so growing up, I always, I always wanted to do well at everything. So, and it wasn't that I wanted to be the best at anything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a competitive streak. It wasn't that I wanted to be better than everybody around me at something. It was that I was competitive with myself. I wanted to do well. And I don't think it was even that I wanted to impress people or anything like that. It's just that I held myself at a really a really high standard to do well at the things I took on. And um, I grew up thinking that motherhood would come naturally and I'd be good at that too. And and I would love it. And um, I was very caught by surprise when I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. I didn't feel like I was being a good mom. I felt like I was... I I learned that I was self more selfish than I thought I was. Mm-hmm. I learned that being on a short leash nursing and not having time to do whatever I wanted to do or drink a coffee in the morning or make my own food or brush my teeth <laughs> or go for a walk or go to a class. I learned that I liked doing those things by myself. I liked my alone time. And um, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. And that was disappointing to myself mm. and surprising. And I think that was shocking. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine that that would be. You're dealing with a new, a new version of yourself. Absolutely, you are a whole new person, and mm-hmm. as that new person in a new body. Mm-hmm. So on top of all of that, I grew up very physically active. I grew up um, dancing competitively and snowboarding as much as I possibly could, and. Running, I I did a lot of charity stuff. I I ran to the top of the CN Tower for WWF. I uh, World Wildlife Foundation. Not, yeah, I think they've changed that too. Uh, I did a half marathon. I I was very physically active, and I couldn't do that anymore. I was recovering from a C-section. I was nursing a newborn who wouldn't take a bottle. He would barely even take a soother. I was on a very short leash as a new mom and I couldn't do these. Um, and also dancing was taken away from me. I gained a lot of weight and then you lose a lot of weight, obviously with pregnancy. So your vertigo and your balance is completely thrown off. And I lost the strength and the balance and the, um, I couldn't do, I couldn't turn anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't do the things I was used to my body being physically capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get an endorphin release from it that I didn't realize I mentally needed. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was very hard getting to know this new body and this new person that I was and getting to know my new baby at the same time and trying to connect with them and trying to sustain a relationship with Sam and getting to know each other as these new people that we were with all of this new responsibility. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge deal. Yeah. It goes underestimated underestimated for sure Mm -hmm. with this you know label as having postpartum depression so that was a year a year after you'd had ollie when you went to the hospital okay yeah so from there onwards um what was your openness like about this new diagnosis that you had or were you I, i know that you'd said that you felt a sense of relief but now did you feel like you were 
more willing to talk about it or willing to share or, um, yeah. Can you just elaborate a little bit on maybe what that would have been like, even just moving forward after that diagnosis in those initial stages? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I initially, I don't know if I started talking too much about it. I would talk about it with closer friends or family, um, quite a bit. And I was comfortable talking about it. Absolutely. I didn't start advocating as much until later on. Uh, we went through it four to six months of trying to get on the right medication that worked for me. So that was quite an adventure too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the first medication just quickly, cause this will help explain those initial experiences with advocacy for postpartum. Um, that first medication I went on, I actually had an allergic reaction to and started to itch. I started to itch everywhere. And I started, I'm very susceptible to, um, skin situations. When I had mono in high school, I got mono rash. Lots of people don't even know that that's a thing. I think it's like 6% of people that get mono, get mono rash. Um, when I had Jude, I got pups rash and apparently I had an allergic, when I had an allergic reaction to this medication, I went on Ciprolex. I started to itch and I started to scratch my skin until I bled and I went to the doctor and they said, maybe you're, it's winter. Are you wearing, what fabrics are you wearing? Mm -hmm. Wool, things like that. Uh, I went back to the doctor again. You know what? It's been a really, it's been quite a cold spell up here in Northern Canada. So maybe just don't take such hot showers. That one's laughable. (laughs) So I I grew up here. Literally. I I remember looking at him and being like, I'm not buying that one. But I left and thought like, okay, you're a doctor. Like I think that we just expect them to be right. And so I left and thought like, okay, that, that must make sense. Mm -hmm. Even though in my heart of hearts, yeah, I grew up here. I'm, I'm pretty accustomed to cold winters. I'm not taking hot showers and then scratching until I bleed. Yeah. So, um, eventually we, we discovered that it's an allergic reaction to the Ciprolex. We switched my medication. Turns out new medication, same ingredients as the Ciprolex had another, another allergic reaction, of course, which is frustrating. Um, but in between all of this, for people that aren't aware, when you go on an antidepressant, it takes quite a long time. They usually say approximately four to six weeks to, um, for your body to react to that medication and for it to start taking effect. And then when you come off of it, you need to wean off of it properly. Otherwise, you're going to go through withdrawal symptoms. So, of course, I need to wean off of Ciprolex before I go on to my new medication. And weaning off of Ciprolex, the withdrawal symptoms are next level. You are physically weakened to just crumbling. I couldn't... Like, we're, we're Right now, we're sitting on the couch with Cozy. I wouldn't have been able to lift this blanket off of myself. Mm. I was so weakened. And... And during all of this, I'm trying to run a dance studio, so that was interesting. Um, thank goodness for Shay. <laughs> um, for teaching for me. But then, so I get on my new medication, another four to six weeks go by to get to get that one into effect. Realize I'm having the same reactions to it, another four to six weeks to wean off of that one, and then another four to six weeks to go on to a new one, which is mirtrazapine, which is what I was on. Um, 30 milligrams of mirtrazapine for about three years or so before I decided to wean off medication altogether. Mm -hmm. So in those first few months, I think we were just finding our, our footing and finding our balance and understanding that this is our reality. There is some relief in, in um, the fact that what we've been going through is explained now and we're finding a way to, to help fix it and find treatment. And then once we did find treatment and, and I, 
figured out what was right for me, which again, my mom was just incredible with. She was so adamant that we find the right medication and reassuring to me that there are options. I didn't know. I thought that when you're depressed, there's an antidepressant and here you go. Mm-hmm. There's only one option. And if that one doesn't work for you, then you're shit out of luck. Yeah. And luckily she knew and that there were options and we found the right medication. And, um, and I found myself after about six months for the first time in about two years. And that was a huge relief. And I think that there is a lot of worry for people that go on antidepressants that they're going to walk around on a medication as a bit of a zombie. They're not sure how their body's going to react to it. And it's always so important to me to make sure that people know that I was already walking around as a zombie. So in this state of just, I was in a state of depression, walking around anxious to the moon and back about Mm -hmm. everything. And I couldn't live that way anymore. So my option was medication and my body needed it so badly chemically that it reacted properly to it. And when your body needs a chemical and it needs that medication, it's going to react in a way that gives you reassurance Mm -hmm. and shows you yourself again. So that's really important that you just brought that up about that chemical component, because I think that there's such a misconception that being depressed is only situational mm-hmm. or, or is most often situational when that's not the case at all. Mm-mm. No, it's, it's, um, it's genetic, it's chemical, it's, it's imbalances in your system. Mm-hmm. It's, it can come on from so many different. Um, and for sure, things. I'm sure that the situational stuff is a huge influence Absolutely. in it. Absolutely it is. Well, and ours is the perfect example of, yeah. um, I think I was telling you earlier about how that first anxiety attack that I had. And if anyone watches the video that I have on Facebook, it'll, it goes into the details of that first anxiety attack and what caused it and and how it was handled. But that doctor looked at me and said, walking down the street, there may be 10 people going through what you're going through, um, with what you have on your plate. So how much responsibility you've taken on new baby, new business partner from overseas, all of this new stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, out of those 10 people, a couple of them have a genetic component that are going to cause them to react the way that your body is reacting. So genetically, mental illness, depression, anxiety, OCD does run in my family. And so I am more susceptible to it. So a situation triggered that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was, so that's, she did bring that into light and, and educate me really well on that, which was important. Mm-hmm. Coming off the meds, um, your steps to coming off the mm. meds. So what would what would be your, your steps or, or what were the steps that you had taken to kind of wean off? So in January 2018, I decided, I think I actually sent a picture to uh, my best friend, Danielle, and my sister, Quinn, of a cutting board with my medication pills on it and a knife. And I said, I'm getting the fuck off these things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay to be on medication. I was ready. I, I wanted to come off of it earlier, but then we decided to have another baby. We were ready to have another baby. And I thought it's just smarter for me to just, I'm feeling good on this medication. It's not, I double checked. It's not going to harm, um, getting pregnant. It's not going to cause issues getting pregnant. It's not going to harm the new baby. I can stay on it as long as I feel I need should. So I stayed on it until I was done nursing Jude. And then I was done nursing Jude. Things were falling into place. Jude was going to a really strong daycare. 
I was feeling good again and I was physically able to bring um, physical fitness back into my life, which mm-hmm. I knew was going to be helpful. And so I decided I am, I am ready. And I think it's so important to make sure that you are ready and to time this right. So I was ready and I was excited. So I send this picture and I'm like, I am getting off of this medication. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. And that is the feeling you want. You don't want it to be stressful. So I, um, I went to my doctor and she said, this is going to take a while. Mm-hmm. It might take up to six weeks. <laughs> the magic number. Yeah, it didn't take six weeks. I, I ignored that number because I took six months. But, um, so I, I always find that laughable that it's like, oh yeah, it might take up to six weeks. Like, and she was like seriously preparing me for that emotionally. I find that so funny that like, oh, this might take up to six weeks. I hope you're ready for that. And yeah. I'm in the background. I'm thinking like, oh, if you think I'm only taking six weeks to do this, you're laughing. Like I've already done this, the whole withdrawal thing once or twice. I'm not doing that again. Yeah. I took my time. And so I cut my pills in half so that I had some full dose left over. I asked my doctor for a half dosage prescription so that I could basically create three pill bottles of a full dose, a half dose, and a quarter dose. And then I I started, I started the OCD kicked in. This is where it gets really uh, helpful to have OCD. So I have my calendar and I've got full, full, half, full, full, half. And the alarm goes off at a certain time of day and tells me which pill bottle I need to go and take my medication out of and so that goes on two to three weeks of full full halves and then two to three weeks of full full half half and then two to three weeks of half half quarter full and and I can see the patterns happening and and eventually I just start breaking it down and breaking it down to making it so that every other day I'm on a quarter dosage and then every other every three days I'm on a quarter dosage and and if I needed to take my medication I would notice or Sam would notice like I would start to scratch or I'd say like, oh my God, are you itchy? Yeah. <laughs> Did I change the fabric softener? Like, and he'd be like, you know what needs to happen right now. And I'd go and take my medication. So you get to know what your body needs. And as long as you're in tune with that. But I also had four other kind of pieces to my puzzle. So I made sure that I was physically active. This is when I started to spin, um, which was hell at first. I remember <laughs> there's a couple of posters in the spin studio. I could tell you word for word, even just from memory right now. Cause it, that was my distraction. Yeah. <laughs> Every time the teacher would be like, okay, in a 30 second sprint, I'd be like, 30 seconds, my ass. Like, <laughs> this is like going to be an hour. And I'd just read the poster and my legs would go. So physical fitness was a major one for anybody that starts to spin. Just know that that feeling goes away and then you start to love it. Uh, diet, of course. I made sure that I was eating healthily and, and regularly because I get into a habit of being a workaholic and eight hours goes by and I haven't eaten anything. Mm-hmm. Um a strong supplement program. So I did a lot of research into supplements that would help fill the gaps in my nutrition and make sure that my mental health was taken care of. Um, and no drinking. So I cut alcohol out completely from January until I don't think I had a drink again until my birthday that, that next year. So it was a while. So those are my four kind of, those are huge pieces to my puzzle. Cause mm-hmm. when you want something and you know that you're ready for it mm-hmm. and you, um, know that it's what's best for you, you'll do whatever it takes. And then you've got those anchors too to keep coming back to it, right? Mm -hmm. To keep you on track for that goal that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I took my last pill in June 2018 Mm -hmm. and and I was really excited about it. It was time. I was always really okay with being on medication and I, I absolutely think that there is 
zero shame in being on a medication. Some people are on a medication for their whole life. I think that when it's needed in your life, you know that it's what's best for you and for in order to make it so that you're your best self for your family and your loved ones, it's important. I was ready to come off of it and I knew that I wanted to come off of it and I knew that that was what was best for me in my life and so um, I found a way to do it and, and it worked for me and how it worked for me might not work for everybody but Was there ever a time afterwards that you felt that you should have gone back on it or that you shouldn't have come off it? That's a really good question actually I um, that's so funny because I think it was around September or October of this year I FaceTimed with Danielle and I I was in that state of the boys were at school and daycare. I was home by myself. I think I was cleaning up the kitchen and I just called her and said, I don't feel good. I don't feel good right now. And I lost it. And I just thought, I feel back to that state I was in a year or so ago or before I was even on medication. And it's scaring me a lot. And I don't want to go back on medication. I just worked so hard to come off of it. And I remember her saying, like, have you talked to Sam about this? And and I hadn't because I was just in denial. And and in that moment, though, I just suddenly had to say it out loud. And it helped. And then I came back to and I, I knew that I had these few things that I could do to help mm-hmm. and made sure I did them. And then just kept myself very in tune. Don't suppress because when you I've I've suppressed for a long time and it doesn't help anything. So it's really important that when you start to feel that way, you tune in. You tune in, you realize, okay, like, I'm feeling this way. That first step is admitting it, so... And then tell your people. And then tell your people. That's an accountability component, too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Major. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's really important. And And then take a step back. Okay, what do I need right now? Do I need a night in a hotel by myself to reflect and come back to? Or do I need quality time with my kids right now? Do I need to put my cell phone in a drawer and not look through social media right now? Do I need to uh, go for a run? Do I need physical activity? Do I need to eat something comforting? Do I need comfort food? Do I Mm -hmm. need... There's so many things that, um, yeah, I think that unfortunately a lot of people will actually say like, oh, I could really use a drink right now. But it's so important too to remember that Alcohol is a depressant. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to come off of antidepressants, it doesn't make any sense to have a depressant into your body. So um, even though we're kind of tempted to go that route, and not necessarily because we want to be drunk, but I think sometimes that um, I think that having a drink can also remind us of like a fun time or remind us subconsciously of being surrounded by people that we're having a good time with or having fun. Yes. But in the end, the bottom line is that alcohol is a depressant. Mm -hmm. And so even though it can remind us of a good time, it's not going to do anything to your chemical advantage. No, that's right. It's depressing your whole system. Exactly. So it's important to remember that when you're looking for something comforting. Like what is, what do I need personally that is going to comfort me? And then making sure it goes hand in hand with what's going to chemically do me a favor. Yeah. On that, on that note, even just because you just mentioned comfort foods, you had some pretty serious food restrictions. Yeah. So when I was nursing Ollie, um, we always thought when your babies call, like you do anything to try to help make sure that they're comfortable and make sure that they sleep. And we, um, we discovered that maybe there was a chance that what I was putting into my body was coming through my breast milk and causing him some digestive issues or some acid reflux or just all of his issues. We actually 
whenever I nursed Ollie, he wouldn't take a bottle. We tried everything. We tried soy. Uh, we tried dairy-free. We tried goat. We tried every formula under the sun. I remember ordering this insanely expensive formula from Germany, I think, once even. And then, so anyways, he wouldn't take any of it. And we would line our kitchen floor with nursing blankets. And after I nursed him, one of us would burp him over our shoulder and he would just throw it all up, all over these nursing blankets. And then you would just use your foot to clean up the floor with the nursing blanket, holding the baby, and chuck him down the stairs to the washer and we'd get out a whole batch of new ones. and Try again. Try again and just try to keep his tummy full. So he was screaming because he was feeling ill. He was screaming because he was hungry. He was... And so you want to do anything you can. And what I was putting into my body was obviously going into his system. And so we thought, okay, maybe he's lactose intolerant. Maybe mm-hmm. my breast milk has too much acidity or is too acidic. Um, so I cut out a lot of food. I cut out chocolate. I cut out anything to do with dairy. I didn't put butter on my toast. I cut out anything that had any level of acid, um, apples, tomatoes, oranges. So that means pasta sauce. That means any form of like juice. So you're trying desperately to keep your caloric intake cranked to keep your breast, keep your breast milk stocked. And, um, you're living off of boiled potatoes and Oh gosh. And nothing that's comforting and filling your cup. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if you did, if you did give into a craving and have one little tiny square of chocolate and then the baby was up until 4am screaming, it was all your fault and you're yeah. dealing with a lot of guilt. So it was hard. And then of course, dealing with a mental illness and dealing with sleep deprivation and stress and then not being able to eat anything. I lost a dangerous amount of weight. If you look at pictures back from when Ollie was about four to six months old, I think my healthy weight, just to throw numbers out for perspective, I have a really healthy um, relationship with the numbers on the scale. I think that mm-hmm. every body is different and me at 150 pounds is completely different than somebody else at 150 yeah. pounds. And my healthy weight is about 140 to 145. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel good and and I feel healthy. Um, with Ollie, I was about 145 when I got pregnant. I went up to 195, gained about 40 to 50 pounds, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, and within four to six months, I was about 130. And on my five foot seven frame, athletic built, uh, that 130 doesn't look very healthy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, food restriction. What a fluctuation. Tricky. And yeah. too quick. That's, yeah. That's not a healthy timing Mm-mm. to lose that much weight. When you mentioned um, comfort and finding comfort in food, if I asked you about self-care, what does self-care look like for you? I think that there's um, there's such importance to self-care, of course, and I think that it's gotten it's gotten a little bit more popular to make sure that especially moms understand the importance of self-care, and I love that. I think it's so good. Um, and I think that this is said so often, but I don't think it can be said enough that taking care of yourself is taking care of your children. Absolutely. It is. Oh my God. Like there's no better way to put it. We can sugarcoat that and like elaborate on that as much as we Mm -hmm. want. But the bottom line is that my 40 minutes at spin a day means that my, my kids and Sam have the best version of me when I get home Mm -hmm. and Sam going at 6am and taking the paddleboard down to head Lake and paddleboarding for an hour or two and then coming home and spending the day with us 
means that we have the best version of him. Like, it's not just moms that we need to talk about no, this for. it's everybody. And it looks everybody. different for everybody. Exactly. You, and that's when you said earlier about tuning into who you are and what you need and what your what body your needs, needs what your mental health and state needs, what your heart needs, yeah. what your soul needs. Knowing that inside out is going to help you be able to make those choices to be the best version of yourself. Exactly. And... Um, like in our spin class, like we spin together and my sister's the teacher and she says all the time, like, I don't journal. I don't meditate. This is my meditation. Mm -hmm. This 40 minutes of, of hardcore spin is what my mind and my body needs. And, um, and it's different for everyone. Like you said, for somebody else, a high impact level of, uh, like high stress, exercise may not be what they need. Mm -hmm. They may need to sit in silence on this beautiful deck of yours looking at on like hashtag Wigamog mm -hmm. in complete silence with their eyes closed and, or with listening to a podcast or listening to a meditation, like a meditative guide, or they may need to journal every day. Mm -hmm. They may need to have their self affirmation in the mirror every morning. I don't do any of that. I tried a lot of it. Um, and I, I keep it all like way up on the priorities list for what everybody else may need. I learned through kind of process of elimination what my mind and my body needs. And it's high impact, quick. Workouts? Yeah. Yeah. yeah high intensity. I need to like feel like I'm going to pass out and see those little dots. Stars. <laughs> see stars? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I need to see the stars and feel like I'm going to fall off my bike and then I know that I'm going to have a great day. Hmm. Yeah. Quick endorphin release? Exactly. Absolutely. Quick and dirty. What would some advice be for some new moms? What, what do you think would be your best advice for new moms? Or maybe some moms that are even a few weeks, few months in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, so much. Um, get yourself in a circle of women, whether it's on your social media, whether you guys, all you do is FaceTime. You don't have to leave your house anymore to feel surrounded by people. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that there's a danger to that, but I also think that there's a comfort to that. So for me, you couldn't have gotten me out of my robe in those first six months if you paid me. So being told like you have to be at the earlier center by 10 a.m. if you want to socialize, that wasn't going to work for me. I needed to just not have any pressure of being anywhere at a certain time. I already had enough of that because I was working, because I had to be at my place of business at a certain time every day. And we were already dealing with me teaching until 10 PM, Sam getting up at 2 AM to go snow plowing and me calling my parents at 6 AM and saying, Ollie hasn't gone to sleep yet. Could somebody swing by on their way home or on their way to work this morning? Cause I really just need a cat nap before I go teach, um, a, a senior ladies type class in three hours at mm -hmm. 9 AM. So we were already on such a schedule that being told that in order to socialize with other moms, I needed to be somewhere at a certain time. So for me, FaceTime, social media, following certain things on Instagram, that was very comforting. Um, but my advice to new moms is definitely find what works for you to get yourself into a social setting. Don't hold yourself up at home by yourself with your baby because you're going to you need adult conversation and you need to talk to people who can relate to exactly where you are right now and not just listen to your stories of how your morning went and be like, oh, that sounds shitty. Mm -hmm. They need to look at you and be like, oh, same girl. Because when you have been up all night with a screaming baby and um, you wake up in the morning and you have to nurse them and somehow get yourself fed and 
live with the guilt because maybe your your milk didn't come in because you didn't eat enough the day before and then maybe the baby's screaming again won't go down because um, the white noise isn't loud enough or in my case you chucked the white noise machine at the wall and watched it explode into pieces <laughs> uh, Amazon Prime is great we had a new one in two days so uh, yeah that pressure of of being somewhere at a certain time just isn't going to work for you so find a way to be with people I think that relatability is super important too, that when you, when you are talking about the crappiest morning that you've had all week or all month or whatever, and someone else is like, oh my gosh, that was my day today or something like that, that, that relatability, you're less alone. Yeah. Like listen to this, like me too. Yeah. This is what I did this morning. And Mm -hmm. you're not just telling somebody that is trying to sympathize with you. You're telling somebody that can relate by telling their story. It's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Empathy, they've been there. Yeah. Yeah. They can get in there. They can dig down the hole and sit there with you. Yeah, you want a circle of empathetic moms. Yeah. You want to be... um, And that was something that Sam and I really struggled with as new parents is that we were the first... The first people in our close circle of friends to have a baby. And I can remember calling Danielle once. It was Gav's 25th birthday party. And I remember just crying to her on the phone because I couldn't go. And I remember just crying and being like, I just want to be there. It's my... It's one of my best friends. Like... Gav's been one of my best friends since we were in the ninth grade and I'm not at his 25th birthday. Mm -hmm. And that was so sad to me. And I just cried to her and just said, my baby won't stop screaming and, and I can't feed him enough. I can't fill his belly. And he was about six months old. Maybe he was even, no, he would have been older because yeah, no, about six months old. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't be there and it was really sad. And that was the reality. Our friends weren't in the same place as us. Mm-hmm. And they were amazing. We were so lucky. They were so kind of, so helpful and so understanding. They were they didn't disown us right? when we had to hermit. Well, now think of how many of your besties have not had kids. Oh, it's great. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny and strange because now they're having kids and I don't have a, a baby. My kids are both potty trained and out of diapers and feeding themselves. I can't keep the fridge stocked. I'm going to yeah. have to get a Costco card because <laughs> my children just think that helping themselves to um, yogurt drinks and squeezies, those are awesome healthy snacks. Thank God they love fruit too, but they, I can't keep, I literally last night I went grocery shopping after they were in bed strategically and hid the food behind other food in the fridge. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Because, and I'm, so I'm coming out of this stage that they're all yeah. just getting into. And so I love the fact that I can kind of live vicariously through them with the highlights of it, because I do worry sometimes that I wasn't present and I wished it away a lot. And, um, I didn't enjoy a lot of my experience, especially with Ollie. With Jude, I did a lot more. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like this can be enjoyable. What is this? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't but know. Come, but again, just that. Great. It's it's one thing to bring an awareness to it and to just to acknowledge that difference. Mm-hmm. It's completely different to actually compare. Yeah. And so even to be able to look and see that hindsight where you where you were where, where, where you yeah exactly where yeah. you've come from and where you're at now. I laid I laid Jude once. I laid him down in his bassinet awake. Didn't even swaddle him. Turned around to like get dressed. I turned back around. He was asleep. And I remember mm-hmm. just thinking like, Who are what? you? Yeah. What? I don't have, I didn't, what? Like, there's no white noise playing. Dr. Harvey Karp on, with the strong hairdryer isn't blasting. <laughs> I didn't have to, like, put the swing on and strategically start bouncing. You swaddled and, like, bounce with the swing. And then, like, pray to every, like, form of higher being that you stay asleep for more than 10 minutes. Uh-huh. Like, completely you're, you're different babies. Like, what yeah. is this? And, uh, and it was great. And so I wish that version of new born and new mother experience for all of my friends of course yeah 
Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This meant so much and, and my highest hope is that it, it helps somebody. I, I know it's going to. I, I know it with every ounce of my being. Thank you, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Safe Haven Podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe so that you get the new episodes every week. Like the episodes, share them with all your friends, and comment as you follow along. Your generous support keeps the sharing and messages coming your way. You can find the Safe Haven Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Podbean. And you can also follow along on Instagram at the Safe Haven Podcast for the latest updates. I'll talk to you next week.